Hey there, I'm Edwina Kennedy, registered pediatric dietitian and mom of two, and this is the My Little Eater podcast. Each week, I'll be dishing out all the best info on feeding and nutrition for your baby and toddler, answering all of your what do I do when scenarios, and helping you gain complete confidence in not only feeding your child, but in parenting as well. Every episode is filled with actionable and proven feeding strategies delivered by a mama and a feeding expert who's been there and done that. I hold your hand and take you step-by-step through all stages of feeding while showing you how to implement what I teach you so that you can raise a happy and healthy little eater of your own. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the My Little Eater podcast. I have a very special guest for you today. Her name is Dr. Katya Rowell. She is somebody that I have been hoping and dreaming of having on my podcast ever since I first created it. And today we get to chat with her. So she is a feeding specialist, a doctor. She has written a book that I actually read when I first encountered, you know, the beginning stages of picky eating with my kids and I was looking for somebody that would provide evidence-based info but really just lay it out in an easy way and um, I found her book it's called helping your child with extreme picky eating and I fell in love with it and I am so excited to have her with us today because one of the big things that I think you're going to love about this interview is she really knows how to connect with the biggest concerns that most parents have. She empathizes so well with the struggles that we go through. She is actually a mom herself and uh, she goes through the reality of the situation when you're you know, dealing with a picky eater. Where does our responsibility lie and where does it not lie? Like she takes a lot of pressure off, I find. And uh, she really removes that guilt factor that often comes with parenting a picky eater. So I think you guys are going to love this interview as well. She goes over her five steps for overcoming picky eating, which she outlines in her book. So we're going to be doing a full deep dive. I am very excited for you to hear this. And without further ado, let's just dive right in. Hi, Dr. Katya. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing really good. I'm so, so excited to have you on the podcast today. You are somebody that I look up to and I have based so much of my teachings off of. So much that I do in my practice is really based off of your work and specifically your book, the Helping Your Child with Extreme Picky Eating book. And so we're going to hopefully get to dive into this book today and the, you know dissect pieces of it and just get your get your tips and advice and expertise uh, to all of my listeners today. So I'm very, very excited to have you. Well, thank you so much. So I want to start, Katya, by just asking you to tell us a little bit of your background as a doctor, how you and how you kind of became so knowledgeable in feeding, because I know in medical school, it's not necessarily a focus, at least from the experience that I've had with many family doctors, it seems that little is known about feeding issues and picky eating and nutrition for kids. So where did you gather your knowledge and expertise and what was that journey like for you? Oh boy, you are spot on. Um, and I think as a physician, I can call out my, my fellow primary care providers. Um, I went to, you know, University of Michigan Medical School and then a great residency program. And we just don't learn about this stuff. We had like one lunch and learn about breastfeeding and, you know, one dietetics lecture where the dietitian talked about, you know, eating fat free and salt free 
soup and packaged products. <laughs> you know, and I'm not that old. I'm in my late 40s. But so, yeah, we don't get taught this pretty much. And so a lot of what um, I did as a primary care doctor was just kind of winging it and thinking, well, we know kids should eat more fruits and vegetables. So just kind of telling parents what to do um, and thinking that I knew better. And um Oh, it's so humbling. And then I I had my own daughter and that was what brought me into this journey. It was like, suddenly I had this kiddo and I myself had weight and nutrition worries and kind of thinking, well, I know what I'm supposed to feed her, but how do I make this happen? And I, I had so much anxiety. And so I ended up bumping into a pediatric dietitian at an airport while my daughter was like devouring her child's snack and going, I don't know what I'm doing. And she was a toddler and she said, oh, I'm this pediatric dietitian and you should read Ellen Satter's work. And so that was really the journey was finding her work. Um, I eventually um, using that division of responsibility in terms of, you know, that when the child is at mealtimes, they decide how much to eat. And trusting that process, and it was really, really scary, but was absolutely within a couple weeks of changing how I fed my daughter, it was such a relief and things had changed so dramatically and continued to over the years. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. It's a lot of work, but it was so profound and it was just this kind of aha moment that I thought, you know, this is what I saw so much in primary care with kids and adults and teenagers with eating disorders and so many people had these dysfunctional relationships with food in their bodies and it just felt like this was um, a path that opened up for me and then I learned and got more training and so you know that was the journey and it was really really humbling and I really had to read you know a couple of years and listen to people to undo some of my training also around weight issues so it was a it was a long journey and I think to validate your experience that parents also might get that, you know, feeding questions are some of the most common concerns parents have and weight and nutrition worries. And the primary, you know, the first line that parents go to often, unfortunately, aren't really trained to be particularly helpful. And in some cases, I have found have given really poor advice. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think it's it's hard as a parent to know, you know, who to go to. I think now with the online world, sometimes it could be a good thing and it could be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we want to go to our primary caregiver. They're the trusted source. We want somebody who knows our full situation, who's giving us advice. But at the same time, like you said, if sometimes if the training's not there, and that's not the case with all doctors, of course, but Absolutely. for a lot of them, it's just not there. The time isn't there even, you know, we know how right. the system works, right? So a lot of times you will be able to find some of that information online. And and like I said, sometimes it's like you find the right person, they're trusted, they're giving evidence-based info, and you can take and pull some tips and 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 use some of that those strategies to help. But at the end of the day, I think getting that one-on-one help and one-on-one advice is always going to be a big important piece. So no, I, I agree. And I think I hope that it does start to change little by little, you know, as time goes on and more information is out there and uh and you know, we have some more training happening for all practitioners really. So Katya, the title of your book that I really want to dive into today is called Help Your Helping Your Child with Extreme Pick Eating. For anybody who has not read this book, it is in my Amazon shops in both the Canadian and the US one. I am 
like I said, obsessed with the book. I think it's a, a really, really great first pickup for any parent who is entering toddlerhood, especially, and is kind of wondering, like, I don't even think you have to wait until you have an extreme picky eater. I think you just <laughs> take it and start imp- um, implementing, excuse me, the concepts that are in here early on for prevention. It's just such good information. But I know that so many parents that I speak to on the daily come to me with worries about their child being picky. And for some, you know, this might mean, oh, you know, their child might skip one meal a day. And for others, it might mean that they don't eat most veggies. And then for others still, it might mean that they only eat like four to five types of food altogether. And so we have this hard time defining what is picky. You know, is my child a picky eater or is this just normal? When do I need to get help with this? And when can I expect them to outgrow it? So I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about the different types of picky eaters out there and what you specifically define as extreme picky eating and then just when an intervention is required. Yeah, you know, I think that, and the research is trying to figure this all out too. Um, I tend to view it as a spectrum, sort of a, a from typical picky eating to more severe. And, uh, you know, about 50% of kids in the U.S. and also it, there was a study in um, in Holland um, that said the same thing about, so it's not just like spoiled Americans or North Americans, you know, it's like, it's kind of universal that about half of all children will be described as picky. And, you know, my own child ate a very wide variety, but was incredibly particular, like still at 15, doesn't want crusts on sandwiches, but enjoys Brussels sprouts and all kinds of foods, but like very particular in terms of how she wants to eat. So there are are just a huge range of experiences of what picky eating is. And the research and and sort of from talking to lots of people and with my co-author who runs a feeding clinic in Dallas, Jenny McLaughlin, um, we think it's about one in 10 that have more research calls it persistent or extreme picky eating. And basically to us, extreme picky eating is when your child doesn't eat enough variety or, uh, or amount of food to where they are not growing. Um, certainly if they're losing weight, that's a huge red flag or to where they're very anxious and like not able to eat at friends' houses or eat at the school cafeteria or, um, and the big thing though, that we add in our definition is, or if the parent is very worried, like if your own anxiety is like overwhelming or if there are a lot of power struggles and battles with your child, because that's a risk factor for things getting worse. Mm-hmm. And by no means do I mean that one in 10 children need to be in feeding therapy. I think we're in this weird world right now where there are kids getting therapy who don't need it, and there are kids who need help who aren't accessing it. And so I want to just caution people that even if you're dealing with, you know, wow, he's really picky, he eats 25 things, and, you know, he's not trying new foods, not every child needs go to feeding therapy. There's a lot for children where we can, you know, work on the parent in terms of how do we support kids? How do we support their variety? And that's, that's the kind of thing we go into the book a lot, but certainly if your child is losing weight, that's something that we need to address. But, and and I was there myself, right? Where I was worried about things I didn't need to worry about. And it was, I was feeding in a way from fear and anxiety that was actually making things worse. And so, you know, there's a lot of 
kind of tension in the world about feeding where, well, gosh, you're blaming parents and you're, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's all sensory, but it's usually a combination of things. It's a combination of, I have the child who's just more cautious than his siblings or really strong-willed and wants to do everything their own way. So, you know, when I ask them to take a no thank you bite, it's a 45 minute standoff, whereas the sister is like, okay, I'll try it, you know, so, so it's things from, from the child, whether it might be some little, some sensory quirks or some real sensory processing challenges, and then the temperament. And, you know, maybe there's an oral motor that's much, you know, more uncommon. And then it's how we react as parents that, we know this is, it just either makes things worse or better and we can feel it. And like, you know, I've been there. It feels awful when you're going, I know what I'm doing isn't helping, but I don't know what to do instead. So, so that's kind of a long winded answer, but, um, but it's complicated and, you know, it's, it's typical picky eating is really common and some kids it gets worse or they don't grow out of it. And those parents need support support, which doesn't necessarily mean the child needs therapy, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. And so what would you distinguish to be the difference between getting support versus needing therapy? Like what kind of what kind of places can parents go to look for some information and what are, you know, those general strategies that they can implement? Like should they worry about or maybe not worry, but should they think about implementing things early on at that first sign of you know, what we call quote unquote pickiness, or should they wait it out for a little bit and then start? What, what's your advice on that? Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm also kind of an anxious person um, and, and maybe a little liking to control things. <laughs> you know, And so I think our own anxieties and temperaments and whether it's a first child and sort of all of this plays into it. And so for me, it was education. I needed to learn more. And it was a book that was my first start. And so I, you know, I think that obviously if there are big red flags, like if you have an infant who is losing weight or significantly falling off their growth curve or um, gagging and vomiting, um, distressed with eating, you know, if you've got a 12 month old that is only taking liquid or pouches, um, you know, finding support is, I think, really helpful. So there are those kind of obvious red flags. And we have a whole sort of section in our book on whether you need to, you know, pursue support or not. You know, if you have struggled since day one with breastfeeding was a nightmare, bottle feeding's been a nightmare, you know, our whole life is about trying to get more food into this child. Finding professional support is really important. And hopefully then you'll find a professional who knows about responsive feeding therapy and, and, um, and can be helpful. And I think that's one of the things that's so confusing that we're trying, a, a group of us is really trying to address is that there are actually a couple, you know, really different ways of addressing pediatric feeding challenges. And so we talk about that in the book and we have some blog posts too about if you are going to find help, finding the right help. So for example, you know, if you go to a, a private therapy center and they take your two-year-old into the back room and you can hear your child screaming from the back room and you're in the waiting room going, this doesn't feel right. Oh my gosh, you know, developmentally and with what I know about my child and you ask to be in the room and they say, no, 
you know, that's a red flag. And so we actually have a list. We have a PDF in the book and a list about trying to find, if you do need help, trying to find the right partner. And it may be just finding a dietitian who can reassure you and say, actually, you're pretty much on the right track. Here's a couple of tweaks. So, you know, I think, I think it's a really complicated world right now in terms of finding the right help, but that's part of why we wrote the book. So, and trusting your gut, you know, if what you're doing is making it worse, like you're having more battles, your child is more upset, they're gagging or vomiting more, you know, then it's not the right help. And so, yeah, so it's complicated, but I think getting educated, finding support, there's also some online support groups that use responsive um, feeding therapy. And I'm happy to share some some other resources with you for, you know, places safe, what I consider would be safe places for parent support and, and different resources. That would be really, really helpful. I know everyone would love to, you know, just kind of know where to kind of go next. One of the things that I also want to bring up is we know that there are so many factors that contribute to the problem of picky eating. And probably the biggest one is the feeding relationship between a parent and a child. And I often talk about the trust cycle a lot, which I know Ellen Sater also talks about always in her research as well. And I know you say in your book, and I'm actually going to take a direct quote. You say, you know, we're both committed to the principle that the trust and relationship between parent and child cannot be sacrificed for nutrition or growth goals. And when I mention to parents that, like, you know, usually they come to me, they need help with their child. I usually always mention, you know, we're going to start with doing most of the work on you, not your child. And they're taken aback most of the time. And they think, you know, if I have so much to change in how much I feed or sorry, in how I'm feeding, then I must have caused this in the first place somehow. So can you talk to the parents listening today just a little bit more about the role that we have in how our child eats? and how problems can start and whether or not it really is our fault per se. I know it's not our fault, but I'm sure you can elaborate on that. Right. And just and then just also, you know, how we can use this to our advantage, like our role in feeding, how important it is. How can we use that to our advantage to help move our child past feeding difficulties altogether? Yeah, this, this is so difficult. I mean, parenting is really humbling, right? And it certainly was for me. And I think you know, I look back on, on our feeding journey. And of course, you know, we had horrible breastfeeding problems. It always just, it was just awful. And I just have so many feelings about it. And I think kind of processing some of that is really important. And the reality is, you know, it's, it's not our fault. That's just too simplistic. Like there are challenges that come at us and parents are, are, we're given, I'm, I'm now talking we, but like parents are given advice that is diametrically opposed. And I have so much empathy for parents. So a pediatrician may say, you know, no child will starve themselves, um, or you just make them eat it. You know, it's just like brushing their teeth. You just make them do it. But it's not. We know that as parents. I don't have any clients who won't, you know, well, I mean, I'm sure occasional battles with car seats and putting their seatbelts on, but pretty much everyone I see, they put their seatbelts on, they brush their teeth, mostly, right? The battle, it's just not the same. So this is really complicated stuff. And, you know, I think there's a difference between like, oh boy, what I'm doing isn't helping and, and feeling a little bit of of um, grief around that. I mean, I certainly felt a lot of different emotions and, and just recognizing that that's going to come up around this. But young children, especially, they don't eat, you know, they don't eat 
they are are eating within the context of a relationship and and parents you know we have these challenges we might have children who are more, a little bit more strong-willed or they do have some sensory challenges or they're smaller than average which causes often a lot of unnecessary anxiety and then we get bad advice we get told i mean the advice i was given was so not helpful in the early months and i was doing it and it didn't feel right and so you know i have i think just as a parent recognizing we do our best we love our children and we're here looking for help and um taking a breath patting ourselves on the back and saying we're going to do things differently and kids are really resilient and it can take time for things to improve. The older the kids are, sometimes the longer it takes. Or, you know, certainly if you've had a child who was in the NICU or they had medical trauma, um, you know, or uh, they had, you know, a, a breathing tube or a feeding tube. So there are lots of things that that can set children up for for having more difficulty around their relationship with food. And so it's a it's an interplay, and we just. I think we just do our best as parents to recognize we do our best, we look for help, and then we try different things and, and hope it gets better. <laughs> you know, it's kind of yeah. the best we can do, but it's complicated. And definitely, you know, children bring different challenges to the table. And why I write the books and do these podcasts and continue to be on social media, which I otherwise find kind of soul crushing, um, is, you know, I want to get the word out there because it's what I needed and what really rescued my feeding relationship with my daughter is this kind of information. So, you know, it's complicated. We do our best and, and we try to approach ourselves with kindness and, and just, just try to find things that help, you know, find things that make it better. Agreed. You couldn't have said that better myself. And I, I love the fact that you said, you know, we just do our best. And that's what I always say, you know, uh, over and over. A lot of topics of mom guilt always come up when I'm talking to, you know, the moms I talk to on the daily. And I'm always saying we only know what we know and we're, we're doing what we think is best for a child at the time. And that's all you can ask for. Um, yeah. So we all and, love our kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I think recognizing, too, that we live in a culture that is so messed up around food that uh, why would we think we we could do this in a culture, you know, we have $77 billion diet industry, you know, everybody is selling gluten-free, sugar-free. It's so different than when we were children or when our parents were children, where, you know, the school lunch could be a, a crustless ham sandwich, a bag of potato chips, and a, you know, a little orange that you might've tossed out. And, um, and now the expectations are also so different. So there's a whole different level of scrutiny, um, of pressure. You know, there's research that millennial moms, and, you know, feel more judged by what our kids are eating. And there's also like, Nobody, when I was growing up, we, there weren't four-year-olds eating sushi. We weren't walking around with like kale, you know, kale or seaweed organic chips. Like we had goldfish crackers and Fritos and, you know, I didn't because I grew up in an immigrant home where like we didn't eat that stuff, but I'd go to my friends and eat lots of it. So there's that other issue too. But so I think it's just this perfect storm of we're in this era where we expect kids to be foodies. And it's not really realistic and it just adds this pressure. And if you, you know, you see your, your, your sister's 
kid on, you know, on um, Instagram drinking a green smoothie from a mason jar and you're like, well, <laughs> you know, and then they say, mama's doing something right. And you're like, oh, no, I'm doing something wrong. And it's just kind of a mess. So I think there's also this cultural shift in the last 20 years of these expectations that are just completely unrealistic. And so in so many ways, we're, we're just set up to fail as parents in this culture. And that's with the privilege, I have to say, of having enough food and being able to do that. I think we're also in the reality of, you know, 20% of kids growing up without enough food. So there's that piece of it as well. But anyway, complicated stuff. Very complicated, but such good insight. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about your Signature Steps Plus program. So this is the approach that you present in your book. And I just love if you can kind of break it down for us, walk us through the premise of it, maybe just a little bit of each step. Sure. So, you know, we have organized it in steps and just sort of recognizing that they all interact with one another. And I was actually on a call recently with someone. They said, well, I know this isn't till step four, but I did it early and it worked. And so I just want to say that, you know, there's a lot of flexibility to it. But I think the number one step is around and this is what I, you know, I'm, I'm just doing setting up like a nine hour lecture series. And most of my time is on step one, which is reducing anxiety and the power struggles and the pressure. And we have a really good body of evidence that suggests, you know, it's not nobody, we can't do double blind randomized controlled trials on children, right? At mealtimes, there's just no way. So we, but we have a lot of evidence that really points to the fact that the more we try to get children to eat more, less, or different foods, the more it backfires. And it causes a lot of anxiety at the table for children and stress and parental stress and anxiety. And of course, that's why I call it the worry cycle is most of that pressure is fueled by worry. So I'm worried my child's too big. I'm going to try to get them to eat less. I'm worried they're too small. I'm worried they're not getting enough protein. And so the worry feeds the pressure of trying to get them to eat more or different foods. And so really for me, anxiety is about that pressure to eat and kind of figuring out with families, where do we have that pressure and, 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 and not doing it anymore. And this is where a lot of people, it kind of falls apart or they, they're like, well, but it's a free for all. You're just telling me not to pressure, but it's not just not pressuring, there's a whole lot of this kind of scaffolding or support and stuff we can do. So I don't, I just want to make it really clear that not pressuring is not the same as just putting your hands up and kind of opening the pantry door. So yeah, so step one is, to me, really important about reducing the parents anxiety. So a lot of time in the book and with clients is about what really is going on with their growth. Do you really need to be worried? And most of the time, the answer is no, that it was for me as a parent. And it's the same with most of my clients. We're worried about things we don't need to worry about. And so I'm going to unpack, do a good history, you know, and figure out, do we need to worry? And if not, I'm going to reassure, I'm going to reassure, you know, most of the time when proteins are worry, kids are getting more than enough. So so this is really important. I think if you're listening as a parent, you know, take a, take a second, write down a question, come back to it later. What am I worried about? 
And do I need to be? And maybe that's what you bring to your pediatrician. Like, actually, no, growth is doing okay, or you're getting more than enough protein. We actually have a quick little formula in the book for how much protein your child needs. And almost always, kids are getting enough, and this surprises parents. So, so that's the first piece is we need to end the bribing, the negotiating, the power struggles, the rewarding with desserts, all of that stuff that makes dinner feel like a chore. Nobody wants to be there because it's hostage negotiating. It's anxiety filled. And so we're, we're bringing back the peace, the connection, the trust. And, and importantly, what that does is it gives the child space to come to mealtimes happy, or at least not upset, you know, in the kind of, so they're regulated. They're not, they're not anxious. And that's what opens up that internal drive of that, that we're all born with, even with sensory challenges or other challenges, those internal drives of, I want to connect with the people I'm eating with that I, I love. So it's connection, it's curiosity eventually about foods that comes, not the first few days, not maybe not the first weeks um, of trying new foods. And also importantly, connecting with their appetite cues. Because if a kid's at the table and they're stressed out and they're negotiating over how many bites to get their dessert, they're not in touch with, am I actually hungry? Am I actually full? And we see then that weight dysregulating where they might gain more than nature intended or not gain as much or even lose weight. So that's step one ish. <laughs> um, but again, there's a lot in the book to it. Um, do you want me to keep going or if you don't mind? Yeah. I'd I don't, love to just hear I don't. the rest. Is, I already warned you uh, before we started <laughs> that I tend to, like I wrote another book called love me, feed me. That's for, um, for adoptive and foster families. And if you're dealing with food preoccupation, maybe you have a picky eater, but they're completely obsessed with, you know, sweets or carbs and they're bugging you all day long. So there's that piece can go with it too. Mm -hmm. So that is something I focus on more in the love me, feed me book, but, but that's 700 or 600 pages long. So anyway, I have a lot to say about all of this, but so, yeah, so the anxiety, so rebuilding that trust, that connection, making space for the child to come to the table hungry and and this is really tough because even though the pressure said, sorry, the research says, and all my clinical experience says that pressure doesn't work, it's really hard for parents to give it up because it works kind of, and it works in the beginning. So a lot of these things we do to, you know, bribing with dessert to get them to eat a pea or two pieces of corn, it feels like it works because you can get that pieces of corn in or that one bite of whatever, or they'll choke down a carrot to get their dessert. But I think we know from the research that even if it works initially, it becomes counterproductive. And so that was certainly the case with my own feeding issue. And I think if we step back as parents, just go, oh yeah, you know, I've been doing this for two years and things aren't getting better. It's not helping my child learn to like these foods or to become a competent eater. So so acknowledging that it's scary to let some of this stuff go. For sure. So step two, which you can work on at the same time, is about having a routine or a schedule. And, you know, this may actually be easier for some of us with COVID because we're home more, or it might go out of the window because we're home more and everyone's bored. And so 
I also want to just give some kindness that during COVID kind of, if you're just hanging on, do what you got to do. You know, this is a pandemic, you know, getting through having our relationship, our mental health is, is as important as vegetables or more. So, but we can have a routine and basically this just means instead of kind of grazing or letting them sit pediasure all day or a smoothie or coming back and forth for their cliff bar or whatever it is that we try to have meal and snack times. And so we might have a breakfast together and then try to wait two to four hours, you know, for smaller kids, it tends to be two to two to three hours for older kids. It might be able to go a little longer. And then we sit and we eat again. And it's so important, particularly for low appetite kids or where we feel like they're not eating enough. If they're grazing throughout the day, they never have the opportunity to really have that cycle of hunger. And so it's just help, really helpful for pretty much all children to just have those opportunities. And it, it doesn't mean we have to be super rigid about it. We can be flexible. You know, if you went to the park and tried to have snack at the park and they were running around and distracted, move dinner up you know, 40 minutes or, you know, so playing with a flexible schedule can be really, really helpful, but it really helps too with the anxiety. Mm. If they know we're going to have a snack or they know that they're going to be taken care of and nurtured. So a flexible routine or schedule, no more than probably about half an hour at mealtimes. A lot of times for kids who aren't eating a lot, they're in the high chair or they're at the table for 45 minutes or even an hour where parents are just trying to get a couple more bites in. But then that kind of messes up with the period where hopefully their stomach is emptying and they're having the hormone shifts with, you know, blood sugar levels go down. So they're experiencing hunger. So that's another piece about routine is trying to, you know, have a good gap where they're not having stuff in their stomach, maybe other than water. So anxiety, routine, trying to get back to enjoying each other at the table. And again, step one and two will be really helpful for that. So rehabilitating the family table is helpful. If you have fidgety kids, having a footrest or letting them tuck their legs under them. So having a chair that's stable where they can you know, feel grounded. Sometimes kids who are autistic or have sensory needs may be putting that weighted blanket on their lap at mealtime. So there's lots of different ways that we approach this for each child. And that's that individualized piece. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, the last steps, I don't even, we don't even talk about food until these first three steps are in place. And of course you can do some of that during it, but the last steps are really about, you know, how do we branch out to new foods? How do we put foods on the table? So for example, part of decreasing anxiety is not pre-plating meals. So we serve foods family style. And maybe we want to get into that. But um, so those are kind of the five steps and really spending the most time on the first ones before we even start with food. And this flips it for most parents, because most of the time it's like, how can I sneak vegetables into, you know, these waffles or this brownie mix? And so we often start with what do we do to the food to get my kids to eat it? But that's okay. back. So, that's yeah. Cool. So, so lots of kind of thinking and it feels really hard and unnatural to kind of trust kids where as a culture, like I said, we don't often trust ourselves. So the first couple of weeks can be really hard. I, I know 12 months into doing this at home, I was like, I can't even imagine doing it any other way. But the first couple of weeks to months, there's a lot of thinking about it. And well, what do I say now? And what do I do now? And 
So just recognizing too that it gets easier as you see things progress. That's right. Confidence comes from doing. And I, I repeat yeah. that all the time because it's hard. It's really, you know, you're always unsure of yourself as a as a new mom, new dad, but even, you know, more than just that first time parent. It's the first time you're experiencing these issues and you really have to worry about things. I know there's always that worry the first few weeks implementing the division of responsibility. If I'm letting go of control, you know, I'm going to have to see and watch my child not eat that much in the beginning until it starts to kick in and, you know, you give it that time for the stress to go down and then, you know, the anxiety to go away and then you can see the good stuff start to come out of it. But that period in between is really, really hard to go through, especially that first time. So it's good to know, just keep in mind, everybody listening, that it does get better. And like you said, you know, at some point in time, you're going to think, oh my goodness, how did I feed any other way? This is the way to do it. And it becomes second nature, but just keep at it. And like I said, the confidence will come from doing it. So yeah. I, point, can I do one point? Oh, of course, <laughs> please. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think it's so important to have those expectations too. So at, and I, I'm two page 200, something like that. It's stages of progress. So Progress is not going to be them suddenly eating broccoli. The the first signs of progress, and this is so important to know, like because that's what builds confidence. Is the first signs of progress is a smile at the table, mm-hmm. right? They're not whining. You're not negotiating. Um, they're more comfortable instead of eating two bites and saying I'm full and crying and wanting to leave. They're actually maybe engaging in conversation. So it's really important to know that early progress is not about the food. It's about that anxiety piece and trusting it. And sometimes, like you said, things get a little bit worse before they get better. So if you don't have the brownie bribe, they might not eat corn again for a little while. Now, again, we're kind of talking about some of the more extreme cases. So a lot of you with more typical picky eating will see progress pretty quick. This is another thing is like, if you're kind of a tip, have a typical picky eater, sometimes this, this is like within three or four days, I get emails or, you know, parents will say, oh my gosh, what a difference. Just these minor tweaks of serving family style. But, you know, if you really are dealing with entrenched, persistent picky eating, it does take time. And really focusing on and celebrating with yourself that early progress. And, you know, I think another thing is letting our kids be participants uh, at a connected mealtime rather than the focus of it. And so, you know, with serving family style, for example, instead of putting the baby carrot on their plate, it sits in a bowl and it may be five or six times that it sits there or on a plate before they put it on their own plate and it's that waiting. And then when they do slide it on their plate while you're talking to their sister or whatever, not making a comment about it so that they have the space to explore it where they don't feel like they're being watched. Because for some kids, I haven't gotten to this, praise can feel like pressure. The attention can feel like pressure. Even people watching them, you know, and uh, oh, so when they do slide the carrot, you ignore it. And, you know, when we think about sort of kids in psychology, it's like, oh, of course, you know, because as soon as you say, I knew you'd like that carrot or what a big boy, you took the carrot. And I've had clients sort of 
talk me through these stories where the kid was about to eat something and the whole family was hushed, like staring at them. And the kid looked up and then just slowly put the food down. So it's kind of a little bit of fake it till you make it and, and celebrating the successes you do see away from the table and away from your child. So if you have to like leave the room and hug your partner or write it in your journal, like, Oh, today he chewed a blueberry and yeah, he spat it out, but he chewed a blueberry and he has never done that before. So there's just a lot of to the process that isn't about like, all right, I made this, I I roasted the cauliflower tonight and he still didn't eat it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm over it, you know, I'm going to go back to making him eat it. Exactly. We often think that it's the recipes, like we need picky or approved recipes in order to solve the problem when really it's so much more than that. That's like the last step, if anything. So I am just in awe. I think you're such a pioneer in this field. Your program, your book, all your knowledge is just it's just over the top. It's amazing. And I know that all my Thank listeners you. are going to really appreciate all the info you've given us today. I will link, like I said, the book that I have linked in my Amazon shop. I'll put that in the show notes and we'll also include some of the other links that Dr. Katya recommends as well that you kind of look towards if you're just kind of, yeah, trying to get a little bit more information on this. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope that we could have you back on the podcast soon again. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much.